Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we'll be talking about biofuels and Brazilian snake venom. We'll hear how scientists realized quite how much oil was gushing into the Gulf of Mexico after the explosion at BP's Deepwater Horizon well. BP and the Coast Guard had been saying 5,000 barrels per day is the amount of the leak. The initial calculations that I made showed that the release was 70,000 barrels per day. And Science Magazine will tell us how flowering plants avoid fertilizing themselves. Originally, scientists thought a single male gene and a single female gene were responsible for keeping the petunia from fertilizing itself. But now in a paper in the latest issue of Science, Gao and his colleagues report that many more genes are involved. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. One of my regular studio guests is here, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of the Science Council. Hello, Diana. Hello, Clive. My FT colleague, Andrew Jack, is in Brazil right now, and I hope he's on the other end of a mobile phone line in Sao Paulo. Hello, Andrew. Hello there. Tell us what you're up to in Brazil. Well, I'm here for a few days looking primarily at the work of the pharmaceutical industry, the rapid expansion of Western drugs companies into the country, and the increasing interest by domestic Brazilian companies, both within the country and also elsewhere in Latin America. There's a lot of growth in uh, ability of individuals with rising incomes to buy medicines and get access to healthcare, which in the past was much more of a challenge. Um, but I'm also looking at the role of uh, the states and a lot of the academic institutions here, which are doing a lot of research to try to develop notably new vaccines and to some degree medicines as well. So it's just that the uh, Butatan Institute in Sao Paulo, which is a uh, state-owned scientific institution. It goes back something like 100 years, originally um, actually developing uh, an antidote to bubonic plague in Brazil. And still its core expertise today is in the development, production and supply, largely in Brazil, but also to some degree around the world, including the US and the UK, of anti-venom, sera, um, treatment similarly for botulism and a number of other diseases using this fairly extraordinary technique which involves effectively uh, providing a little bit of the venom from snakes that are collected here from their farms, injected into something like 800 horses in a farm near to Sao Paulo. And the horses are essentially living factories that generate sera that then can be extracted from the horse um, small enough quantities that the horse, in theory, doesn't suffer too much and recovers after a few months. But then that plasma and serum taken from the horse can be used to treat human cases of snake bites. So you have a sort of a living museum, a farm, a factory, and also a clinic where people can come in literally with 
the body of the snake that might have bitten them um, and will receive treatment as rapidly as possible. Is it one antidote for each species of snake or can they make it slightly more generic? No, I asked that and it does seem still that pretty much you have to have a separate anti-venom for each type of snake. They've got something like 70 different varieties of snake here, um, alive and visible, though safely behind thick glass, including one that was only brought in about a year and a half ago for the first time in captivity, uh, which is three metres long. And each of them, yes, has these individual venoms full of all sorts of different complex toxins. And so pretty much they subgroup the horses into different categories. There are certain apparently species that are somewhat related. Andrew, listening to you, it sounds very much as if this is a responsive mode sort of research activity that responds to the opportunity that's there, or is there a very long-term planned programme of research? Yes, they're doing quite a lot of original research, though around this issue of anti-venoms, they've not been able to find some alternative way of manufacture, though, so they still are using horses as the primary factory. But of course, they've also got a more modern arm looking at a wide series of vaccines. Brazil has a very strong prevention program with um, uh, about a dozen different vaccines that are provided um, as part of a systematic program across the country. And they've developed a series of new uh, vaccines in the last few years, hepatitis B, for example. They're currently working both on a vaccine for rotavirus, for stomach infections, and also for pneumococcal disease. So there's a lot of collaboration with the NIH in the US and a number of other international researchers and some quite pioneering work being done with their scientists, but obviously very much tapping into the priorities and the diseases that affect Brazilians. And looking slightly more widely at Brazilian pharmaceuticals and life sciences, how would you compare it to the other fast industrialised big developing countries, India, China, South Africa? Is there anything distinctive or is it doing much the same as India? I think that there are quite a lot of parallels, uh, like India and China in particular, a very fast-growing market. Of course, one in Latin America where there was, for a much longer period, a rich upper-middle class. And so that's always provided a more attractive niche market for some of the Western drug companies. But I think now more and more with the emergence of a middle class, there's a huge uptake of interest with Western drug companies now starting to buy or take partnerships or form alliances in Brazil. And there is a very strong in-house scientific tradition. So I think that's allowed them to maybe start to accelerate a little bit more rapidly than elsewhere. Well, thanks very much, Andrew. We'll let you get back to the snakes and horses now and look forward to seeing you in the studio again next week. I myself have been away in the week since our last FT Science podcast, attending the Science Journalism Laureates programme at Purdue University in the American Midwest. I met lots of interesting academics and even took a hand in teaching undergraduates how to communicate science. The new director of Purdue's Energy Centre, which is generously funded by the US Department of Energy to carry out research into biofuels, is Maureen McCann. Until 2003, she'd headed a research team at the John Innes Centre in Britain. I asked her how she came to be at Purdue. One of the problems with UK science is actually the uh, lack of investment over many years and now decades into scientific research. 
And so the States has become a very attractive place to do research, particularly that requires large investment that is at the center scale that involves interdisciplinary research. And how do you find the working environment here at Purdue compared to Cambridge and then John Innes? It's very supportive, and Cambridge is a, a wonderful intellectual hothouse of, of creativity. The, the John Innes Centre was a, a fantastic resource of, of infrastructure in plant and, and microbial science. Uh, Purdue University gives me an, an environment that is very diverse and that is particularly strong in two areas that, that I work directly in. So it, it has great strength in plant biology in the College of Agriculture and in engineering. And the Purdue philosophy of discovery with delivery appeals to me. It appeals to me as a way of getting basic science translated through sort of use-inspired discovery and doing something useful at the end of it. Well, let's talk about your work here. There's a vast amount of research going on into biomass and biofuels around the world, and particularly in the US. How does your centre fit into all of that? So we were funded by the Department of Energy to carry out high-risk, high-reward research as an energy frontier research centre. And we were funded at $20 million for a five-year time span. And our remit is to do very fundamental, grand challenge science that addresses the atomic and electronic levels of the application of chemical catalysts to biomass molecules for the production of fuels. So if we're successful, we will be able to produce an advanced biofuel that is similar to the gasoline that is that is put in car engines now in terms of its molecular makeup, starting from plant biomass as as our starting material. So will you literally be putting the chemical catalysts into the plant as it grows, into its stalk and its leaves? We're going to attempt to do that. It is very, very preliminary stages of the research And we hope that by the end of our five years, what we will have done is actually just build the knowledge base that future sort of development and deployment of these biofuels will depend upon. So before we can move to having a gallon of an advanced biofuel, we really need to understand what's going on in terms of the the chemistry of the, the catalytic chemistry and, and the thermal processes that we're applying to the biomass, what is happening to the biomass molecules. Now, we are thinking that, that we could use the tools that we have of genetic engineering and molecular biology in plants in order to tailor them for their end use in, in particular conversion processes. So this is not something that will become a crop necessarily. It's a research tool for us to be able to understand how catalysts interact with specific components within the biomass material. Well, let's assume 10 years on, it's gone really well, 
and you can see it being engineered somehow into a crop. How might that work in practice? In practice and and thinking very far ahead in in the 10 or 15-year timescale, then we might imagine that we could grow engineered crops that would contain catalysts through the structure of the biomass that had been accumulated as the plant was growing. So simply using the energy of sunlight to store those catalysts in the cell walls that surround every plant cell, and that when, for example, a thermal treatment or a chemical catalyst was subsequently applied to the biomass, that the the presence of the embedded Trojan horse catalyst would actually act to facilitate that conversion process. So we would be tailoring the the biomass for its end use in a particular conversion pathway and to some extent tailoring the conversion pathway to to the biomass itself. And it's really this interaction between the chemical engineering and and the plant biology and the the genetic engineering. It's the handshake between the, the science involved in these two disciplines that is energizing us. To, to come in and get the work done each day. And could it be applied in principle to any plant which is a good producer of biomass, or are we talking more about plants that are easy to engineer? Some plants are easier to engineer than others, um, particularly the genetics of some potential bioenergy feedstock crops are difficult, uh, sugarcane, Miscanthus actually have horrible numbers of chromosomes within their their cells to deal with. But some of our major crops are in the category of species we call diploid, where they are like human beings. They they simply have two copies of each chromosome. And, And that actually makes it relatively simple with good transformation technologies to engineer new genetic variants. Well, Maureen McCann certainly gave us some vocal testimony to the pull, the attraction of ambitiously funded, forward-looking and, above all, interdisciplinary research, didn't she, Diana? She did, and she, I mean, her description of where she's now working is such a long way away from any use of disciplines. I mean, she, she didn't really talk about um, the core disciplines. It was really where she was taking that science. And I loved that description, you know, discovery into delivery and the handshake between disciplines. We don't often hear that language about our big centres in the UK. We don't. I think if she had stayed at John Innes, she would have found it very hard to get involved in any project like this in the UK or, or indeed even in Europe. Yeah, we have these fantastic standalone, very specialised institutes, but very few of our universities really do bridge the disciplines in a way that we now need to do, particularly in this area of biofuels. And another thing that this interview, and indeed my visit to Purdue, reminded me, is that although people in Europe have the impression of the US as not taking climate change so seriously. In fact, the US government, through the Department of Energy and other agencies, is funding a fantastic amount of research into various alternative energy projects, again, on a scale and ambition that's far beyond anything in Europe. 
Well, we have these very complex societies. People have a vision of the United States, you know, as car users are not facing up to this. But you're right that actually strategic direction and grand challenges from the centre do drive these things forward. And our worry here in the UK is actually with the cuts that those centrally driven challenges will get cut very easily because the science community doesn't buy into them so easily. Also at Purdue, I talked to engineering professor Steve Worley about a very different energy project this summer's BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. I asked him how he came to be involved in estimating the amount of oil leaking from the broken BP pipe. I was working at home one afternoon, and uh, Richard Harris, uh, National Public Radio uh, correspondent, uh, contacted me uh, by email and asked me if it was possible to estimate the amount of oil coming out of the well using a video that had just been released. This is May 13th. Until then... The public had seen nothing, scientists had seen nothing from BP or the contractors, is that right? On May 12th, BP posted this video, and prior to that, uh, no one in the general public had seen anything of what was going on on the seafloor. And there were a number of calculations of the flow rate at that point, but they were all very low. BP and the Coast Guard had been saying 5,000 barrels per day is the amount of the leak. And your calculation on the first released video showed it was far greater than that. Yes, that's correct. The initial calculations that I made showed that the, uh, the release was uh, 70,000 barrels per day. And there were two other investigators at other U.S. institutions, independent investigators, not U.S. government employees, who also said in the vicinity of 60,000 barrels per day. How did you make your calculation? It's a very simple technique. So it's called particle image velocimetry. That's a mouthful. Basically, it is a way of analyzing images. And the way that we do this technique is we watch consecutive frames of the image of the oil flowing out into the Gulf and watch how structures, basically globs or puffs or billows of fluid, how they move from frame to frame to frame in the video. Do you think BP and the Coast Guard could have done the same thing? Yeah, that's, a, that's the important question. I would find it hard to believe that BP didn't have the technical expertise to do the same thing that I had done. And I think that the Coast Guard and the, the U.S. government didn't view this as their, uh, measuring the flow as their responsibility. So I think they didn't try. Steve had to be rather guarded in his comments because he's going to be involved in all this litigation involving BP. But I think one can draw two conclusions from that. Either BP was staggeringly incompetent and failed to use any imagination in estimating the amount of oil gushing out, or that it knew and deliberately wasn't telling in the hope that people wouldn't realise what a serious incident it was. I don't know what you made of that, Diana. I find it very difficult to make a judgement, but what I do know is that often when organisations are in a crisis... Unless you've got the right sort of mix of people around the table, they're not actually asking themselves the same question. So although people will have seen the video, unless they've got high in their mind the fact that their calculation could have been wrong and they needed to test it, they're probably not saying, shall we do another calculation? Yes, they probably didn't have anyone on their team 
with the imagination of Steve Worley. And to him, it was a simple problem when this science journalist called him up and said, hey, look at the pictures. And he could see, because he was working on similar issues in other engineering disciplines, that he could see a way through. And it was probably rather hard for the BP people. It, it might have been, but it does actually uh, mean that it raises the profile of the science journalist because actually you meet a lot of people and have a good sense of what's going on and who can contribute, and perhaps more than many of the rest of us who are actually in science all the time. I wish it had been me who had made the call. That would have been a great scoop for the FT, but National Public Radio in the US got it instead, and well done then. Now, let's go back to plant science and hear from Science Magazine in Washington. This week, their contribution comes from Sophia Kai. Thanks, Clive. Hybrid vigor is a goal of many plant breeders, selectively mixing the genes of the parents so that they produce genetically superior offspring. With hybrid corn, for example, farmers in the U.S. have been able to produce 20% more corn on 25% less land. But producing hybrid seeds means two parents, and so requires difficult and expensive measures to keep self-compatible plants, like corn, from self-fertilizing. So if we could introduce self-incompatibility into crop plants, they will certainly facilitate hybrid seed production. Taehui Gao is a biologist at Penn State University who studies self-incompatibility in a model organism, the petunia. Originally, scientists thought a single male gene and a single female gene were responsible for keeping the petunia from fertilizing itself. But now in a paper in the latest issue of Science, Gao and his colleagues report that many more genes are involved. We were actually totally surprised because this is the first example of a self-incompatibility system that employs multiple genes to constitute the pollen determinant. Gao was totally surprised because his team's results run counter to the usual understanding of how coevolution works. Typically, coevolution is thought to occur in twos, predator and prey, host and parasite, or even two related genes. But in this case, multiple male genes have coevolved with a single female gene. So how does a single female determinant gene coevolve with so many different types of male determinant genes? Figuring that out will be difficult enough, but what's more, sometimes these male genes even appear to collaborate. Daphne Goring is a biologist at the University of Toronto who co-authored a perspective in science on Gao's team's work. So now this paper shows that it's not just two genes, it's one gene on the female side and three or probably several more genes on the male side that are working to control the system. Gao and his colleagues have found six so far. Three of the six identified genes work together, but not all of them did. So that means that there's probably other genes out there that are involved in this collaborative non-self-recognition. And so I guess the big question is how many are actually involved? Indeed, there could be many more than the six genes Gao has found, says Thomas Sims. Sims is a biologist at Northern Illinois University who is not affiliated with this study. It may provide a certain degree of flexibility in the system, and it gives the possibility of more cross-compatible groups and therefore more cross-fertility within a breeding population. And so more opportunities for hybrid vigor. But, Sim says, genetically engineering such a self-incompatibility system into crops that, right now, 
can self-fertilize. I think that's a lot further down the road and whether this system would actually be really practical in that type of application or not is, I think, still an open question. For Science Magazine, I'm Sophia Kai. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks very much, Sophia, and thanks to Science and AAAS. And that's all we have time for today. Please join us again next week for more fascinating tales about the world of science. All that's left is for me to thank Diana for joining me in the studio. I know you're going to be travelling for the next four weeks or so, Diana. Where will you be going? I'm off to Kerala and Oman. And in Oman, I hope to be visiting the Science Ministry to understand how well they're doing in encouraging girls into science. We look forward to hearing about that. Thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 